Anwen Crawford is an Australian writer whose essays have appeared in publications including Freeze, Overland, and Loops, writing music. She is a music critic for the monthly magazine and the author of Holes Live Through This, which was published as a part of our 33 and a Third series. In part one of this episode, I sat down with Anwen to discuss her relationship to Hole and her experience writing for the series at a time when few other female authors, or artists for that matter, had been featured. With Courtney Love at the center of the conversation, we also explore Hole's origin and influences, their glam 90s LA image, and the third wave feminist backlash against Courtney Love as she challenged every preconceived notion of good womanhood. Whatever that means. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and I'm here today with Anwen Crawford, the author of Holes Live Through This, a book in our 33 and a Third series. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've told you this already, but I'm very excited for this episode in particular because this album meant a lot to me growing up. So I'm very pumped to be talking about it with you. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> so what were your motivations for writing this book and why this album in particular? I think that by the time I came to write this book, which was around 2013, I was someone who answered like an open call for pitches to the 33 and a third series when one of those calls went out. And I decided on Live Through This because I had suspected for a long time, both from my own experience with the record and from conversations I'd had over the years with friends or acquaintances that the album meant a lot to people and Courtney Love in particular meant a lot to people, particularly women who'd been teenagers or perhaps in their 20s in the 90s, and that I'd kind of had versions of this conversation many times over the years in which I would talk with people, especially women, about how much that record meant to them and how much Courtney meant to them. And I felt that that part of history, shall we say, popular music history, had been really left by the wayside because, as I'm sure listeners don't need reminding, Courtney Love's public image in the press, particularly, I think, after her kind of film success in the late 90s, became more and more negative. And I think by the time I came to write the book, she was often seen as a kind of figure of ridicule, really. And that made me really sad. And I really wanted to reclaim what I suspected was another story about her significance. So that was my primary motivation, really. And I will say for anyone who is thinking in the future about writing a 33 and a third or pitching one, I think the other thing to do is to be strategic about the pitch that you make. And I had found out through some digging online that, in fact, no one had ever pitched, lived through this before to the series. And I remember thinking to myself that that meant that either I was onto something or that it was a really dumb idea. It was one or the other. And certainly when I pitched 
to the series. I think my book ended up being number 103 in the series. And by the time I pitched, there was about 90 books in the series, 90 or 95 books. And very few of those, I think about five had been written by women and about the same number had been written about female artists. So I actually put that in my pitch. I said, this is a problem that you need to fix. (laughs) Yeah, they took that on board. It's also just a record that had stuck with me over the years that I had continued to listen to. It's not my favourite album. It's not even my favourite album of the 90s, let alone my favourite album of all time. But nevertheless, it's a record that I had continued to find things in over the years. And I think that was important. And again, when I had those conversations with people, they would say the same thing. I think there are records from that time, particularly from that kind of broadly labelled grunge milieu that have just dated really badly in terms of sound. But I think the whole record lives through this is actually one of the records from that era that people still listen to. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I was actually, when I was reading your book, I was sort of reliving the album. Every time you mentioned a particular song on that album, I would end up playing it. And I was like, wow, this is really transporting. I'm a little bit younger. I'm I'm 27. So I was a teenager in like the early knots, but like mm. it still resonated very deeply with me. And I remembered that time and just donning flannel and being super angry. And yeah, you're totally right. I feel like it's so universal for like a certain set of women growing up. Like, how do you relate to the rest of Hole's discography? Was there any consideration of Nobody's Daughter, for instance? I guess not particularly. Uh, certainly I have time for... Pretty on the Inside, the first whole album that came out in 1991. I think I even said in the book that I think it's a more distinctive debut than Nevermind by Nirvana, and I stick mm-hmm. by that statement. I mean, culturally, we know that the impact works the other way around, but yeah, I think Pretty on the Inside is a really terrific record, and in fact, Teenage Whore, which is the opening track on that record, is maybe my favourite whole song But the latest stuff, I mean, even at the time, I distinctly remember my feeling when Celebrity Skin was released. I guess I was probably about 16 then that I just didn't like it at all and I still don't like it. And I remember because I was so invested in this punk version of Courtney as a teenager, I really felt Celebrity Skin as a kind of betrayal of that. Now that I'm older, I'm like, fine, whatever. She did the pop thing. And I can kind of see the merit in some of those songs, but I find the production on that album really irritating. Like it's so glossy. And by that time they'd lost Patty Schemmel as their drummer. And Mm. yeah, much as I've tried and tried to kind of warm to that record, I've never been able to. (laughs) So... (laughs) Yeah, I kind of more or less left it out of my thinking about live through this. But I think that was okay. I mean, the point of these books is that they're on a particular record. And I think live through this, though I've just said that it hasn't dated, it's also quite particular to its time, the set of circumstances that brought that record about and that kind of made Courtney very famous at the time. And that was very particular. So I really wanted to stick with Live Through This in terms of my analysis. Yeah, let's explore those circumstances a little bit. Could you like talk a little bit about how Hole became a band and what their influences were and what sort of circumstances they became a band under? So 
They formed in the late 80s in Los Angeles. There was an ad famously kind of Erica Lanson, who was the group's guitarist, kind of answered an ad that Courtney Love had placed in the music press that said, I want to start a band. My influences are Big Black, Sonic Youth and Fleetwood Mac. And Erica Lanson responded to that ad and Hole was kind of born out of that. But that was by no means Courtney Love's first band. You know, she had kind of played throughout the 80s in various groups, including Sugar Baby Doll with Kat Jelland, who would later go on to play in Babes in Toyland. She also had a brief stint. It's more well-known now that she had a brief stint as the vocalist for Faith No More before <laughs> Faith No More kind of became a commercial concern. Yeah, so by the time Hole formed in the late 80s, Courtney was already quite an experienced musician in bands. And I'm always interested in the fact that they formed in Los Angeles where Courtney was living at the time. And I believe at that time she was still working as a stripper, which was something that she had done on and off for kind of many years to support herself. Yeah, I think the fact that they formed in LA and so I kind of connect them in my mind, both with the kind of history of LA punk, but also with that kind of slightly sleazy LA glam. I mean, I'm saying this as someone who has never been to LA in my life, but (laughs) nevertheless, the projected kind of image I have in my mind of a kind of sunset boulevard, like late night, whiskey, hard drinking kind of element. They've always had a bit of that vibe to them too. And also not to forget that LA has a history of some great kind of female-led bands. I mean, the Go-Go's obviously being one. I think that that's part of Hole's DNA for me is that LA connection. Which is such a contrast to the whole Olympia, Washington or Seattle, Washington crowd, which it so often gets conflated with, particularly because of the relationship between Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Although that said, Courtney Love had spent a great deal of her childhood in that part of the world as well. So I think she is as much a kind of Portland, Olympia, kind of Northwest person as she is an LA person. But tracing the outlines of her life is very difficult, as I discovered. She's someone who I think has routinely over the years exaggerated the truth, shall we say, and kind of fabricated things here and there. The facts of her life are a bit slippery and that's being held against her. But I don't know, I'm always interested in people who kind of invent or reinvent themselves. I think that's such a strong tradition in rock and roll anyway. But yeah, she kind of had moved around quite a lot, both in the States and overseas. She had a stint in New Zealand as a teenager in Raman school and had lived in the UK and kind of hung out with those kind of new wave UK people in Liverpool, like Julian Cope and Echo and the Bunnymen. And yeah, so she kind of lived this very varied life by the time that whole formed. And then of course, there comes this kind of collision with the whole, with the whole, Um, (laughs) 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 which is totally Uh, derailed my own thought process. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say there comes this kind of collision with the world of Nirvana and with Kurt Cobain. And again, when they actually met is extremely difficult to pin down. 
they might have met in 1989, they might have met in 1991. Like, no one seems to quite have the definitive answer to this question. Yeah. I kind of love that, though. There's just yeah. like an element of mystique there. Yeah, it's like exactly what you said. There's this like sort of myth making or this persona creation of like, which is such a tradition. And yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, that they, because their romance was kind of very kind of head over heels and whirlwind and they were married quite quickly within a few months, within about six months of meeting each other, I think. And I think they were quite aware of this myth-making that they were building up around themselves as this kind of rock and roll couple in the grand tradition, this kind of outlaw couple almost, them against the world. You know, I certainly remember that from the time and from the press coverage of them at the time that they were quite conscious of wanting to play that role. But it was still sort of a complicated dynamic as like you were writing about in your book. I mean, clearly both of them had an extremely ambivalent relationship with the music industry and just like the public and their relationship to celebrity. I mean, how would you say their relationship was with celebrity? Ooh, <laughs> I mean... My or just like with the public at large. With Sorry. the public. I think my sense at the time was that Courtney that maybe her desire for fame was less conflicted than Kurt Cobain's was, which is not to say that her relationship with the press or with the public was easy. <laughs> it was the opposite. It was very combative. But I think that's partly because her ambition which was always clearly stated to be famous, to be a big rock star. She wanted Hole to be the best band in the world. All that stuff, which she was always very open about, that was really held against her. And I wrote about this in the book, the way in which that kind of ambition in women is interpreted I think to this day, but certainly at the time, I mean, remember we're talking the early 90s here and certainly with the success of Nirvana, there were a lot of questions going around the music press about these kind of notions of credibility and selling out and fame and all that kind of stuff. And so Courtney kind of cut an unusual figure in terms of being someone who was very clear about the fact that she wanted to be famous and that she wanted her band to enter the mainstream and to kind of make that crossover. And that contributed to her very combative relationship with the press. Kurt Cobain, on the other hand, I think seemed to be much more conflicted about the fact that he had become famous. But then if you go back and look at the kind of documentary evidence at his own interviews and at his diary entries and all that kind of stuff, you will also find a clear pattern in which he too wanted to be famous. But I think broadly speaking for him, it was one of those situations of be careful what you wish for. When he got it, he really struggled with it. You were talking about how now or when you were writing this book that Courtney Love had become sort of a subject of ridicule. Do you mm. feel like that was how the media was casting her at the time when Live Through This was being made? I'm not sure that the ridicule was so much a part of it then, but certainly there was a great deal of hostility and suspicion. And that was probably exemplified by the kind of famous or shall we say kind of infamous Vanity Fair piece by Lynn Hirschberg, which 
was published in 1992, if memory serves me correctly. So kind of in between Pretty on the Inside and Live Through This. And it had been written while Courtney was pregnant with Francis Bean Cobain. And it was really the first like mainstream piece that aired these rumors that both she and Kurt Cobain had been using heroin, but that she in particular had used heroin when she was pregnant. And, you know, the article itself, when you go back and read it, is an odd mixture of hostile, but also quite bowled over by Courtney Love. And I remember that being the tenor of a lot of pieces at the time, that she was clearly a force. Journalists were very taken by her charisma and by her confidence and by the fact that she was really smart and articulate. And I know this myself as a journalist, if you get someone who can kind of talk about their own work and knows what they want and can articulate that, that's such a blessing three quarters of your work is done Um, so people were really drawn like journalists music journalists and other journalists were really drawn to her as a figure because she gave good quote Um, very good quote and she was both canny and unguarded which is a rare kind of combination but this Vanity Fair article and these allegations that she had used heroin while pregnant again were really a big mark against her publicly and Again, I wrote a bit in the book, I think, the context of the early 90s in terms of kind of feminist activism is a really interesting and I think quite fraught time because you have what we now know as third wave feminism really beginning to emerge, certainly in the United States. But there's also been a pretty long backlash under the presidencies of Ronald Reagan and then of George W. Bush towards the gains of second wave feminism in the 1970s. And part of that backlash, of course, was this notion of the family and the idea that traditional family values were paramount. And so I think part of Courtney's public notoriety at that moment in the early 90s as a kind of expectant mother and then as a mother was that she kind of became the scapegoat for people's notion of like what a bad mother looked like. She really filled that role at the time of being someone that people could not so much ridicule, but really like kind of cast down as being a bad mother. And I don't think that's just because of her drug use. I think that's also because of what she did. You know, she was a rock star and there have still been very few prominent female musicians in any genre, let alone rock, who have also been mothers. That's not a combination that we see, and I think that it's a combination that tends to really upset our kind of deepest, most kind of subconscious notions of what popular music kind of is and what those kind of cultural figures look like. Yeah. So that was a big part of it too. Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting at the heart of like why this album meant so much to so many people, including me, like that she was cast off as this bad mother, but I feel like she also played around and challenged this idea of bad womanhood. I mean, yeah. Courtney Love on that album is so unapologetic. She's like combative. She's angry. And I feel like she gave me permission to be all those things too. I mean, Kathleen Hanna and Riot Girl did as well. They taught me to be angry, but there's just something so crass and like even ugly about love, which I find really intriguing, especially when you think about the way that she would sometimes dress up as like a Pollyanna doll and project this very high femininity. Like you were talking about this in the book with Miss World, and I thought it was really interesting how you 
sort of picked apart each song. But Miss World is particularly intriguing to me because she's talking about how based on this patriarchal logic, women need to achieve this impossible standard of beauty to make up for the fact that they're no longer subservient to men in like an economic sense. It's like the sort of third wave backlash that you're talking about that in lieu of being sort of legally subservient to men, there's now all these pressures on beauty and motherhood. And it's almost like beauty functions as this ultimate symbol of female moral value. And I feel like Courtney is really aggressively challenging that whole idea. And the idea that failing the beauty standard is a failure of the self. And she did it by like almost parodying femininity in this album, but also just by being kind of gross. You know what I mean? Mm, like, yeah, for sure. It's gross, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think her own relationship with those things with beauty standards, with kind of body image, with all those normative values of femininity were really conflicted and unresolved. But in fact, her own conflict and her own irresolution about those things was part of her power, I think. I mean, you mentioned kind of Riot Girl there. I think obviously Riot Girl too, which is kind of happening at more or less the same time, Riot Girl is also challenging these kind of norms, right? So much of kind of Riot Girl, and I think this is in some ways representative of a lot of third wave feminist thinking, is very based in the body. The body is the starting point. But I always think that for Riot Girl, there was more of a kind of, how shall I say this, like a kind of moral imperative to improve yourself. And that's not specific to Riot Girl. I think that there are many strands of feminism that have involved sometimes a kind of unstated belief that through kind of practicing feminism or coming to a feminist consciousness, you will become a better person, right? I think mm -hmm. we still see some of that today. So Riot Girl kind of always had, I think I called it somewhere else, a kind of a missionary impulse to kind of convert people to make them better, right? And that was powerful in itself. But I think Courtney's power and also part of the reason that she came into open conflict with Riot Girl was that she kind of refused that improving quality. She called herself a feminist. She was very vocal about her feminist politics, but without becoming a better person through that. That's the challenge that she presented at the time and that I think she still continues to present to a lot of people, including a lot of self-declared feminists, is that she is a feminist without resolving any of her own conflicts about being a woman in the world. And yeah, to me, that was her power. I couldn't have articulated it that way at the time, but I think I felt it and I think a lot of young women felt it at the time in the 90s that her, I mean, you used the word permission before and I interviewed so many whole fans for this book and that was the word that kept coming up over and over again was that Courtney and this album in particular had given them permission to be whatever, to be a mess, to be ugly, to even want to be ugly. Like that was the thing. I mean, again, you know, that's such an interesting part of Courtney, as you said before, was that she kind of embraced this kind of grossness to a large degree, that she could be crass, that she could be crude, and that in doing so, she kind of gave her fans 
permission to do that too. And I remember feeling that really powerfully at the time. I mean, I was 12 when Lived Through This was released. So, you know, I was on the young end, I guess, of probably their fan base. But what is a 12-year-old girl other than a kind of complete mess of kind of (laughs) inner conflict about what her place is going to be in the world? And I was someone who spent most of my childhood and adolescence being relentlessly kind of teased for being fat and ugly and all that kind of thing. So when someone like Courtney came along and was like, yeah, fuck you. I am ugly. Oh, sorry. I just swore. I'm not sure I'm fine. Yeah. But when someone like that kind of came along in the public eye and could kind of use all those things, use all those insults as weapons and kind of cast them back in the face of her critics, that just meant so much. I totally agree with you. It just reminded me a little bit of the line from, and it's interesting that this association came up because I know that Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love really loved them, but that line from a raincoat song, no one teaches you how to live. It's funny because I actually interviewed Jen Pelly who wrote the raincoats 33 and a third and we talked about this too, but I feel like even though the raincoats inspired Riot Girl. There's something more in the spirit of what Courtney Love was practicing of like, no one teaches you how to live. Like you can just sort of be yourself. But yeah, if you're ugly, you're ugly, be angry. And you can sort of embrace these qualities that are often dismissed as unattractive or even repulsive in women. You know, like there's the Charles Bukowski's of the world. There's the William S. Burroughs. And it's like, okay to be sort of like a creepy old man. But (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Like, I do think that there was something a little, she really touched a nerve with people because she, as you said, like, yeah, I think she was very comfortable embodying these things that really downgrade moral worth in women, usually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But then she would really oscillate back and forth, too, between, like, really wanting to be the kind of beautiful star as well. And again, that was something, her kind of inconsistency was held against her. But like I said before, I actually think that inconsistency was part of her power. I think people tend to view inconsistency, particularly in public figures, as a flaw. We often want popular artists or public figures to have a kind of recognizable, consistent line on things, a particular image, something that we can rely on. But Courtney was nothing if not unreliable. But I think there was an honesty Mm. in that. There was a truth in that that was also really powerful. 